Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. My name is Hallie Epstein, and I'm a research assistant with the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy and a second-year law student at Yale. I'm in the studio today with Professor Jed Purdy from Duke Law School. At Duke, Professor Purdy teaches property, constitutional law, and environmental law. His scholarship concentrates on the theory and history of property law and the place of public values in the private economy, in addition to American progressivism and environmental politics. Thanks, Jed, for joining us today on the podcast. Thanks, Hallie. Professor Purdy, in addition to your environmental work, you've written more broadly on American politics and democracy. Where does your interest in environmental law, ethics, and policy come from? Well, I guess there are two parts of that answer. Um, One is uh, more intellectual and one is more personal. Um, The first one is that I see environmental politics and environmental law in their history as very um, deeply and extensively connected with issues about American identity, um, about what the role of government in the social order ought to be, um, about the same kinds of themes that are recognized as being central to constitutional law, for example, or political history, but are often left out of the way people talk about environmental law. Environmental law is imagined as being a more technical or even a technocratic field, being a field that doesn't have much history before 1970, And a lot of my work has been to try to show that both of those things are are incomplete, that the story of Americans legally and politically regulating their relations to nature goes back a lot farther, and it's deeply entwined with all of the basic themes, Um, the individual and society, the history of progressivism, um, to to name a couple. Um, So part of it is, is seeing that environmental issues through the same kind of lens that I bring to constitutional and other kinds of work. And I guess the second reason um, is much more personal. Um, It's uh, that I grew up a good deal in the outdoors, and before um, college even, spent a year working full-time in uh, grassroots environmental politics in West Virginia, which is where I grew up, at about the same time that the um, practice of mountaintop removal was um, becoming widespread. And it's a a set of themes that I've always felt very close to, both in the positive way that I take a lot of nourishment and sense of importance from them, and in the the way that um, I think the problems and threats in the area are very um, immediate and pressing. At what point did you start to think in your career, either in law school or afterwards, that you might be able to connect some of these themes to a broader uh, scholarship or agenda in terms of making the American public or your other audiences aware of these issues? Well, in one way... um it was when I was in law school here and took the environmental law course in my first um, year as a student. 
and like a lot of people who take the course, found that there was a huge gap between the values that had brought me to the class in the first place and what I was learning, because the topic um, of environmental law is so technical and so dry. Um, and I, although I knew it was important and I was led to be mastering it, I couldn't see um, how it was rooted in the attachment to the natural world that was the reason I was sitting in the class and was the reason I think a lot of the other students were there as well. So in my second year here, um, I got together with a classmate to create a kind of um, seminar that we, a kind of seminar on the history of environmental values and environmental politics that we convinced the environmental law professor to let us teach as a kind of special section that was attached to the main environmental law course that people could take for an extra credit. And it was really the first attempt to put together the technical um, material of environmental law with a broader kind of political and cultural history. And we found it was pretty exciting and pretty rewarding to do. And in some ways, I've been doing versions of that in my teaching and in my academic writing ever since. Um, I was also writing um, in popular magazines and in non-academic books uh, as early as the time I was in law school or before law school. And one of the things I wrote about and found tremendously important and rewarding um, to write about was uh, the rise of mountaintop removal, how that was related to the changing shape of the coal industry and the changing prospects of Appalachia. Um, I also wrote while I was in law school a long piece about the changing agricultural economy and demographics of the Midwest and the High Plains, consolidation in the meat industry, the environmental effects of industrial farming. And it always seemed to me that of all the things you could have a public voice on and where you could try to connect um, popular conversation with specialized knowledge, this must be one of the most important. And that's, I guess, also been true since. And we'll return to some of those topics more specifically later. For now, I want to turn to what you might call one of your most recent versions or forthcoming versions of this area. Your new book um, coming out this year is titled The American Environmental Imagination. What exactly is the American Environmental <laughs> Imagination? <clears throat> well, um, I guess what I mean um, is that when you look back across the history of American lawmaking and politics around nature, you find that there are four different, there are really four bodies of law that shape the way we deal with the natural world. Um, they're all in existence today, and they overlap and interact, and sometimes they compete. But they came into being at different times. Um, beginning in the earliest period of independence and coming forward through the last decades of the 20th century. And each one really has a distinct structure that's based on a distinct vision of what nature is for, what um, is valuable about it or how it matters, what human beings have at stake in it, and how we ought to govern it or govern the way we use it. And of course, each of those bodies of law comes out of a political moment that was animated by those ideas about nature, or at least involved in them. One was the moment of frontier settlement and clearing 
the ideology connected with that had much to do with creating the whole system of private property that's still the most basic legal part, legal apparatus for our dealing with the natural world. One of those moments is the progressive moment of reform, of building a powerful national government and regulatory state, where developing um, extensive regulation of the natural world for conservation purposes was part and parcel of a more ambitious regulatory attitude toward the economy, like in labor and antitrust, toward human well-being, like in public health law, zoning and planning law. One was the um, the romantic moment, the kind of discovery of the deep self and the wish for authenticity that was connected with the uh, new ambition to save spectacular and extreme public lands, create the national parks, create the wilderness areas. So, um, so what's environmental imagination in this? Environmental imagination is the word I use to capture the way that Americans had to be envisioning the world and how they fit into it in order to talk to one another about it in the ways they did and achieve the kind of collective action around it that they had to, to create those bodies of law. So it's ways of seeing nature and how we fit into nature that make it possible for us to do things together politically and make, those, uh, make that politics permanent or semi-permanent through law that I'm talking about. Moving to environmentalism more broadly, does environmentalism have to change or die in the current political mm. environment? <clears throat> well, one of the things I've been very interested in is the idea that we live in an age where there's no more nature in the old sense of nature as something that's separate from us, that's defined by being not human, that was here before us and will go on after us. Um, it is true now that in the age of climate change, of mass extinction, of massive toxification of many systems, that there's nothing that we haven't touched. There's nothing that we haven't changed from the upper atmosphere to any part of the Earth's surface to the deep sea. <clears throat> and the recognition of this fact, which people sometimes crystallize in uh, the idea of the Anthropocene, it's a term... Um, used to suggest we're in a new era of the Earth's history, like Holocene or Cenocene, um, and that, um, that in this age, human beings are a driver in the historical development of the Earth, maybe the most important driver. Um, this idea is sort of connected with the thought that it's... Um, that it's always been a mistake to think of nature as something entirely separate from and apart from people. Um, that it's not only that today we recognize that we're so entangled with nature as a matter of fact that it doesn't make sense to say we're over here and nature is over there. But that it's always been true that when people talk about nature, they've been talking about how they value, how they want to relate to, how they're thinking about the natural world. Ways people have talked about nature have always been partly a product of the cultural ambitions, the cultural anxieties that people are living with at the time. Um, so 
A lot of important people have looked at this combination of facts, a sort of Anthropocene reality and the philosophical thought that nature and people are really very close together and entangled. And I think both these things are true. And they've said, well, environmentalism is in some ways founded on a philosophical mistake because so much of it has been about trying to um, respect and protect nature which is imagined as something independent of us and imagined as having a sort of existence and value that's independent of human decisions and human culture. Um, and that's, that's been the source of the slogan that environmentalism has to die and we need something new. I actually have um, I have a very mixed mind about that. I think that the resources of imagination and value and practice that we have in... Um, the history of our relations to nature are things that we're going to have to continue to reassess and transform and update. But the idea that we should start from a new year zero, um, I think, simplifies and and mistakes the situation. So I, I think that environmentalism has always changed and will continue to change. But I'm sort of relieved to say that I don't think that it has to die. I'm relieved too. <laughs> so... In your view, on the topic of climate change, should we think of it as a particularly environmental issue, or is there room in our broader environmental imagination to conceive of it in a different way that might inspire more political will and public action outcry on climate change? That's a wonderful question. Um, <clears throat> yes, it, it points to a really difficult uh, and basic issue, which is... Um, another part, this issue is another part of the reason that people have doubted whether the idea of environmentalism is helpful to us now as an idea that we should cultivate. Because environmentalism is a great example of the general problem that it's hard to say which issues we should think of as environmental and which we shouldn't. Um, it seems strange to imagine climate change as not an environmental question. It seems in some ways, if it isn't then nothing is. But at the same time, there are so many respects in which it's about issues that don't seem to be classically in, um, environmental. Um, it's about the um, distribution of risk and harm across the world order in highly unequal circumstances. It's about public health and the movement of malaria zones. It's about national security with the coming of droughts in areas that are already water stressed. And if you say, well, in some ways, environmental issues have always touched on those things, then again, it starts to seem like maybe environmental issues are everything. And if they're everything, then they don't seem to be anything in particular. Um, and if they're just one way of talking about everything, then... Maybe they're a politically limiting way to talk about issues like climate change because, and I think this is something we might talk about later, there is some cultural association between environmentalism as a political label and the special concerns of the wealthy and privileged and still predominantly white parts of the country and parts of the world, which can be, for lots of people who matter in the climate change situation, an off-putting starting point. Um, so what should we say is an environmental problem now? Climate change seems to be and not to be. Take another issue. Um, 
genetic engineering, biotechnology. In some ways, it's as deeply about our relation to the natural world as anything is. It's not something we've traditionally thought of as an environmental question. And again, um, if it if it's an environmental question, then maybe maybe there's a lot else that's also environmental. So I think. Um, I don't think we should be, how shall I say this? I don't think we should be attached to any particular version of a list, any particular list of issues that are environmental as opposed to issues that are not environmental. I think we should maybe think instead of environmentalism as um, having to do with a kind of question that we ask about many issues that cuts across many topics. And the question is, how are we living with nature? What are we valuing in it? What kind of natural world are we shaping for itself and for our own future existence in it? And I think this is a question that's present in climate change, but not the only question there. Same in biotech, same in energy policy. Um, and that might be the way that we'll need to think about it. You've mentioned that we should give up um, the idea that we can control the earth. And this seems to extend beyond the climate change question to a lot of issues, whether of public health or resource limitation in a growing world. Do you think that idea also needs to be reconceptualized? I should say, um, when I say that, that we need to give up the idea that we can control the earth, I don't exactly mean it in... I don't mean that it's immoral to want to try to control the earth, which is something that environmentalists have argued. Um, the attempt to control our vulnerability to nature, to disease, to drought, to earthquake, has been a, a huge part of humanitarian progress, and I think it has it to remain that. But I think the paradox of the situation that we're in, you could call it the paradox of the Anthropocene, is that our power to shape the natural world is vaster than it's ever been. But we don't have any power to control the effects of what we do that's commensurate to the raw impact of, um, of our changing force. So in climate change, for example, we know that we're raising the seas, we know that we're changing the weather patterns, we know that we are... Um, bringing on the possibility of, of um, massive ocean acidification. But we can't, how to put it, in a way, every day we're choosing to bring those increased risks and disruptions down on us. But we have no means, technological or political, to choose in any deliberate and explicit way, the world that we're creating. So we're sort of willy-nilly remaking a world without a way to um, envision it and actually say yes to the world that we're creating. Um, I don't think that's a situation we should embrace, except in as much as we have no choice. Um, I think that one of the things we badly need to begin trying to develop is a politics and an environmental imagination that can raise those questions more explicitly so that we aren't living in a world of our own making, but not our own, um, not of our, really of our own choice. 
Jed, your your writing reminds me of Wendell Berry's as well as a few other authors in the environmental area that I greatly respect and admire. Are there specific authors or poets who inspire you and your work? Why is it important to you to maintain the lyrical nature of environmental or natural writing, even in your legal scholarship? I feel really flattered by that question. Um, I don't think that I write nearly as handsomely as Wendell Berry. Um, But I do try to write with an attention to language. Um, And an attention to language that comes out of a view about what language does. So often in law, language is an instrumental tool. And that's what it's for. If you write a contract, for example, or a statute, by and large, you're trying to do something with language, something that's as objective and functional in its ideal as a competent piece of civil engineering. You're trying to write a contract that won't fall down. Um, I don't think that's the only thing that language does. I think that language also, um, it it makes new experiences possible and it makes the sharing of experiences possible by putting things in words and making them intelligible to one another. We can make experiences endure. We can make them more widespread. We can even crystallize them. And finding new ways to crystallize them so that they become real things, even even for ourselves, even within one person, let alone being able to share them and act on them. I think the history of environmental imagination is partly a history of articulation, of finding ways to put words to new experiences of nature so that those become real things. And so I try to write with at least some respect for the fact that the choice of word is not just technical. It's also an attempt to get something about the weight and the texture and the mood of what it is that you're describing and maybe say something that hasn't quite been said before or at least not distort what it is that you're trying to say by saying it too bluntly. So I am... To the first part of your question, I hugely admire Wendell Berry's writing. I've been reading him since high school, since early in high school, I think. The Unsettling of America, his great book on culture and agriculture, was one of the first serious books of nonfiction that I ever read, and I've read it several times, Um, and read his poetry and his other essays and his fiction as well. My sister is actually named after one of his characters. Uh, Hannah Coulter. Um, and I, uh, I also greatly admire Barry Lopez, the writer, uh, naturalist and writer about nature, whose book Arctic Dreams, which is a series of deeply scientifically and historically informed essays about the far north, about the landscape and the light and the living things and the experience of being there um, is just one of the great meditations on the experience of landscape, on how landscape and identity become um, parts of the same thing. Thank you so much for your time today, Jed, for this inspiring conversation. Again, Professor Jed Purdy's new book is called The American Environmental Imagination, and I hope it will inspire debate and action in shaping the environmental values that drive our society. Thank you so much, Hallie.